Hello, everyone. My guest today is David Holtzclaw, and we are talking weatherization and home energy efficiency. David is the founder and principal of Transduction Technologies, which is a small engineering firm based out of Omaha, Nebraska, providing building science analysis, testing, and energy consulting services to residential and small commercial clients. David and his team perform a number of services, including energy evaluations, duct leak testing, ventilation testing, pressure mapping, combustion testing, infrared imaging, and cost-benefit analysis of implementing renewable energy systems as a whole. We discuss how the home energy efficiency market has grown over the past few decades, the top things you can do to your home to improve your energy efficiency, and both the tail and headwinds the IRA bill is bringing to consumers and contractors alike in Nebraska. I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. And with that, David, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the time. So the focus that we've had on a bunch of previous episodes on the Skill Labor Series really has been focused on HVAC professionals, professionals in the electrician space as it relates to just the topic of home electrification. So I wanted to turn the focus today on a precursor step to getting heat pumps installed and new induction ovens installed and new appliances installed, which is going back to the old adage, you can't improve what you don't measure and how you measure energy efficiency of a home sometimes could be a complex topic. And so we wanted to bring in an expert and break that process down. So super stoked to have you on the show. And also, I just wanted to call out that we've talked to a lot of folks who have come from California, Massachusetts, New York, and so a lot of the coastal states, but you're based in Omaha, Nebraska. And I think that would be really interesting to get a peek into what your world is like being in a non-coastal state and thinking about how differently energy is produced. So super excited to dive in. So let's start with the foundations. So when you buy a car, which is a non-trivial purchase, efficiency measures like miles per gallon or range is really important. But when you buy a home, I feel like people don't think about efficiency of a boiler or HVAC system or you know what kind of insulation it has. And there's 140 million homes, residential homes in the U.S. Why is it the case that we haven't had a culture of measuring home energy efficiency. And I guess now we're talking about the topic, so it's become more and more prevalent as something to focus on. So maybe if you can give us a history of home energy auditing as a body of work that has existed, and how has it shifted over the years to the point we're at now? So home energy auditing kind of started in the 1980s. There was a few rare events that academics were doing in the late 1970s as a result of the energy embargo and the spike in energy prices during the Carter administration that really kind of started out of the 80s. And actually, it was the banking industry and the mortgage industry that was pushing it. So you think about the typical house, today they're paying about $2,500 a year in utility costs, $2,500 to $3,000 a year. Back then, it wasn't much cheaper, and with inflation, it was a bigger percent of the homeowners or the mortgage ease budget, right? So mortgage companies got very interested in making sure that new homes or homes that they were underwriting, that the buyer could, could meet the payments. 
And so they started the home energy audit, which later became ResNet in that area. And there were several different versions of that, several different states, and it has evolved over time. So now today, the home energy auditing world primarily dominates new construction. It's mostly always in new construction. So right now, there's about a million homes a year that gets an energy audit by either ResNet or Title 24 out of California. And so those third numbers increasing is still a small percentage, still like only 20% of the new construction market, but it's a growing. And so that's where most of the ratings have been gone. Some of that has been under building codes or local jurisdictions enforcement. Some of it has been through like mortgage companies wanting to make sure that they're getting what they're paying for, as well as other lending agencies. On the existing side, uh, existing home audits, that was kind of the wild, wild west until really after the ARPA program, President Obama had brought in the ARPA program in 2008. And that was kind of started through BPI, the Building Performance Institutes, and the weatherization programs, mostly under the Department of Energy, that had been around since late 1990s, early 2000s, mostly through weatherization programs for low-income housing, low-income housing tax credits those type of programs, and they become more formalized, and they now have what's called the Home Energy Score, HES Score, which is similar to HERS rating, but the HES focuses on existing construction, and why HERS Score focuses on new construction. I didn't know that differentiation before. Okay, HES for existing homes and HERS for... Primarily for new construction. You can do it on existing homes, but it's made and meant to be for new construction. There's two organizations that you just mentioned, ResNet and BPI. So how do they work with each other? How do they play with each other? They don't. There's been a lot of bad blood of the year. They're better today than they were. When I first started getting into this as a result of the ARPA program, kind of 2012 timeframe, they saw all this big funding come in through ARPA and they were always trying to get their cut of the pie, right? So there's a lot of elbows being thrown, a lot of not nice business practices and teamwork. And so that led to a lot of bad blood. So BPI had a niche in the weatherization program. They've been working with Farm Energy for over a decade by that point in time. They were heavily involved with a lot of weatherization programs that are primarily funded through the DOE. They give money to the states and the states run those weatherization programs. So they kind of kept that niche. ResNet was trying to get into more and more existing construction and then After a while, they kind of realized that new construction is probably their best fit, and they kind of went back to that new construction. That's kind of how they separated. They still don't work much together at all, kind of unfortunate, and I'm not sure if those wounds have been healed yet, but there's very low cooperation. If there is, they don't talk about it. So for whatever reason, it's kind of been a split. So ResNet's primarily focused on new construction and multifamily, BPI, multi-localization programs, and energy assessments for existing construction. Understood. Okay, got it. That's helpful because I was talking to my partner yesterday, talking to him about how I was going to interview you on the podcast. And he's like, oh, you know, I'm BPI certified. I'm like, really? I didn't know that. I'm like, how does this one organization work with the other? And so it sounds like over the years, they've really figured out their niche of the funding pie, but also just the, how would you characterize it? The market network and, and the industries, right? New construction is a very different industry than existing homes, right? Weatherization programs are mostly run through nonprofits and government agencies. 
whereas new construction is almost always the private sector, right? So there may be some government funds pushing it, and we'll have some tax credits and things like that, but it's almost the TIF funds, all that stuff, but it's almost always the private developments. To, to make it even more complicated is ResNet is for the country besides California. California has a HERS score, a call it HERS, but it's actually run through CalCERT. So the state of California has their own separate HERS rating that's run through CalCERT and the Title 24. So that actual California HERS rating is actually different than a Nevada, Washington, Virginia HERS rating. Not super different, but there is some differences there. So that even makes it more confusing. Okay, we're going to have to bring on someone from CalCERTs to talk about the country of California and the HERS rating that is unique to California. So it sounds like from the 1980s on, new construction had energy efficiency kind of built into building codes and the way that... Not really. So the first energy code for new construction was written in 2004. And so the first energy code, which is called the IECC, the International Energy Conservation Code was published in late 2004 and got rebranded in 2006 when it was updated and revised in 2006. So our building codes, most of the U.S. is under what's called the ICC, the International Construction Code. And they come out with new codes every three years. So 2003, 2006, 2009, 12, 15, 2018, right now we're in the current 2021 version of the ICC. The next version is coming out in 2024. So the first energy code that was included in the ICC, the ICC is actually 17 different codes. There's a residential code, there's a commercial code, there's a code for plumbing, a code for electrical, a code for natural gas, piping, yada, 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 fire, whatever. So the first time it was implemented in the ICC was in the 2006 version of the ICC, and that was the first building code. Now, just because most of the country hadn't adopted, it wasn't until ARPA came on in 2008 that said that when that money came down to the states, the federal governments under the Obama administration said, if you take this money, you have to adopt the 2009 ICC. And so the states that we're looking at, you know, anywhere from 50 to $200 million said, sure, without really realizing the bag of walks that that was going to open up. So most states first adopted an energy code was a 2009, and they adopted it somewhere between 2009 and 2012 time period. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to square the... When you mentioned when home energy audits started becoming a thing in the 1980s, and it sounds like maybe between the 1980s and the early 2000s, actually, what was happening between the 1980s and early 2000s in the home energy space? So much like today, interest rates were sky high. For those of you listening that weren't around back then, we had very high interest rates. And so mortgages and mortgages default was a big issue. So again, the the end of the banking industry, where all things run through this country is through taxes and financing, said, this is a concern for us. We have a high rate of default. What can we do to eliminate this? And so back then, you had a lot of variable mortgage rates. So you got a mortgage. Today, they're all fixed. You can't get a variable mortgage today, but most people don't because it's not intelligent. Back then, 
they almost all were variable. So you may have bought a home loan at like 7% and it could balloon to 9, 10%. And now that's a bigger chunk of your monthly income. So the mortgage companies were saying, okay, how can we save this? Well, if we can lower the energy bill costs, that will help us guarantee that the lendee pays their mortgage every month. So then they decided, decided saying, hey, if our bank or our company is underwriting this mortgage, you need to have an energy audit. And it needs to have ABC or whatever, or it needs a score of whatever number. But it's still based on the, the old ICC code, which has existed for a long right, time. Right. Understood. So it wasn't every banking company, it wasn't every mortgage company, but there was enough of them to kind of get an undercurrent of flow of interest across the market. So that's why it started, is bankers wanting to protect their money. Bankers wanting to protect their money, make sure that people can pay and not default on their loans. So therefore, making their mortgage as low as possible by doing these energy audits based on the existing code to have them to switch to more efficient appliances. And then as time went on, as more funding and more energy was being put into the federal government and looking at energy efficiency, given way for ARPA programs to exist. And then we decided, oh my gosh, we've got to really think about updating code that's existed for decades in new construction because we got to make sure that whatever new houses come onto the grid are as efficient and built with energy efficiency as a forethought instead of an afterthought. Correct. Yeah. And I should probably mention ARPA was President Obama's workforce development program. And I'm blanking on the actual words. American Recovery Something Act. Yeah, the American Rescue Plan. Okay. All right. That put in, that was kind of the after the 2008 crash that was one of the many bills the federal government sent out there to try to encourage investments and get our economy running. So the idea was, let's start investing into this. That's when the famous Tesla loan and the solar panel loan of the solar company that like six weeks after they got a bunch of money in the federal government, they went bankrupt. That was all part of that bill to help kind of get the renewable energy sector off the ground and get the energy efficiency sector up off the ground. That's great. And not to be confused with the Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is also ARPA. Yeah, I should have defined that earlier for white audience. My apologies. Great. I'm, I'm glad you did. All right. So let's transition to talking about transduction technologies, which is the business that you own and run. Maybe this is where we can dive into the more personal side of things. So David, what has your career path been that has led you to now running this engineering firm that focuses on home energy efficiency? Strange. So I, I started off in the aerospace industry. I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to work for NASA. And so I ended up getting some advanced degrees in the engineering world. Did a lot of years in school, worked for NASA. Along the way, met and married somebody from Nebraska, ended up in Nebraska because she wanted to move home and be by her family. And so when I moved to Nebraska, most of my experience was in the aerospace industry. And there are basically no jobs in aerospace in Nebraska. So I was an academic for a while. I was a stay-at-home dad for a while. And had always been very environmental, kind of a tree hugger, so to speak, and was concerned about the environment. And so that's kind of when I put up my own shingles, art my own company, interested in energy efficiency. So I'll definitely need for that. So I'll need for that locally. Not many of the engineering firms were fitting that niche. And so that's kind of how I started around the 2012 timeframe. 
And something in my research, I don't know if I'm showing all my cards here as someone who grew up in California and did not know a lot about Nebraska. Nebraska is interesting in that it's the only state in the country that is served entirely by consumer-owned power entities, meaning that like there's 30 public power districts, 120-ish publicly owned utilities, which keep the costs of electricity low in Nebraska compared to some of the other states in the country. How does low energy prices play into people's desire to get energy efficient homes? Like if I don't have to you know, pay so much for electricity, why just purely from an economics angle would I care to make my home more energy efficient? Sure. So Nebraska, like a lot of Midwest rural states, a lot of private utilities didn't want to do business there because you're putting a lot of infrastructure in for very few users. It's not cost effective. It's not good business. So what happened is a lot of Midwest states have what's called rural co-ops, which are basically state entities or local municipalities that got state money to provide electricity to the citizens of the state. Nebraska took it a step forward and said, all of our utilities are going to be publicly owned. And so that has been pluses and minuses to that. That has been advantages and disadvantages. The advantages of when this was done in the 1930s is that it made sure a lot of our rural farms that produce beef that you all eat got power. And so that was an advantage of it. Disadvantage of that is that we don't really have a public utility commissioning. So we really don't have anybody overseeing these public utilities. The thought is these public utilities have publicly voted on board of directors and that those people oversee the utility. Often those boards are overran by the management of the utility. And so oversight has been our issue lately as in the last 20 years. So pluses and minus to that. There's also a lot of state statutes that cap the cost of electricity or cap the increase in cost of electricity. So it has to be affordable, it's gotta be reliable. There are certain code words in our state statutes that limits how fast public utility can increase their electricity rates. However, they have found loopholes around that, right? Just like every other utility across the country. So for instance, I'm in Omaha, that's the Omaha Public Power District, that's kind of the largest district in Nebraska, it covers 13 states, kind of about the size of Rhode Island, and I'm sorry, 13 counties in Nebraska and states. And what they do is that since they can't raise their, give their consumption charges, they increases their flat fees. So for residents, your service fee is $35 a month, which is top five in the country. Very expensive because the electricity rate's only about 12 cents, which if you're in California, you probably had a heart attack because you're playing two or three times that. So I think this, the national average is around 17 cents. So the consumption costs are low, but the utility has been able to make up with that by increasing your service charge. So from a homeowner's perspective, because you have cheap consumption costs, the cost effectiveness of energy efficient upgrades, whether it's more insulation in your attic, more efficient heat pump, whatever the case may be, your payback is less. So because you're paying less per kilowatt. Nebraska still has mostly natural gas heating throughout the state, as do most states in the country. And those states fluctuate a lot because they're commodities. So we also have a lot of propane in our state, in our rural communities. And propane states also 
fluctuate greatly and they can fluctuate even higher rates. So that often, when we get calls for energy efficiency upgrades, it's often their heating bill because, you know, as most of the listeners probably understand, your propane and natural gas costs have increased since the Ukrainian war. None of our natural gas or propane is coming from Europe, but it's a global commodity. So somebody blows up a pipeline in the North Sea, your gas cost goes up. So that has been a factor more than electricity rates. Yeah. And for someone to be able to switch off of natural gas and onto electricity and that electricity rate being already pretty low is an added economic benefit. Correct. Because well, you have to have a benefit for the homeowner going to electric heating. Yeah. That was a deep dive into a policy question. Okay, let's zoom back out and focus on transduction. Who are the people coming to you and saying, David, I want to do XYZ to make my home more energy efficient? Who are your customer? So we have about a third commercial, about a third residential, which I include multifamily, and then about a third, I'll call it other. Some of it's renewable, some of it's design, some of it is how do, what, how do I take advantage of tax credit X, IRA benefit Y, whatever the case may be. So of our residential buckets, most of those right now we're about 70, 30, 70% new construction, 30% existing construction. That used to be flipped up till a few years ago. Now we're getting a lot more new construction work. The existing home is I want to lower my energy costs or I want to be more sustainable or I don't trust the man and I want to be independent. So Nebraska, like a lot of Midwest states, have a strong kind of libertarian tint to it. People don't trust authority. And if they can get off the grid, there's a population of people that will want to do that and are willing to pay for it. That's a small percentage, but they do. They're there and they exist and they call us. So about a third of that, a third people that are interested in sustainability, and about a third people are interested in, in lowering financial reasons, lowering their utility costs. Yeah, got it. I would have thought that it would be... 90, 10, 90% lower energy costs, 10% sustainability. And then I had no idea about the folks that wanted to really live off dependency on grid. That's interesting. Curious why the 70-30 flip from new to existing? Why are there so many more new build? Our building isn't increasing. We're still building about the same number of new construction homes, but our cut of business is increasing. So mostly that is people have learned that our residential design particularly from a MEP mechanical electrical plumbing is pretty bad hvac contractors are trained well on how to install systems they're not trained at all on how to design them same thing with electricians same thing with plumbers that's not how their training and their craft and contract profession propagates they get very little design training and locally, our HVAC designers are hideous. So across the country, they're bad. There are good ones out there. But most of the time, they're poorly designed. They're oversized. The ducts are undersized. The mechanical equipment is oversized. That creates a lot of issues. And here, they're really bad. People know that to us to properly design the system. We're getting more people that want to be off the grid. They want to be like a net zero. And most of our HVAC contractors just can't design that, design and build it well. So the people are coming to us for those design services. 
Got it. So same volume of new houses being built, not some explosion of new housing build rates, but the people who are building new houses are realizing, hey, if I want to design this house to be net zero or a passive house or you know as energy efficient as possible, I really have to bring in someone who understands the design of all these systems, how they work together, and you are that person. Yeah, we were getting lots of the baby boomers who are looking at their forever home. Like, this is the last house I'm going to build it. I'm going to live in and it's going to die here. So they are willing to spend more money upfront to get those long-term benefits, lower utility costs, easier to go off-grid, more resistant to weather as our weather gets funkier due to climate change. So we're just getting more of those clients. Yep. And maybe this is a good grounding question I should have asked early, but I'll ask it now. What are the main culprits of an energy inefficient home? And I guess maybe this... like. Yeah, this would only apply to existing homes, since we were just talking about new homes. You build that from the ground up, you make it as energy efficient as possible. But for existing homes, what are the major culprits? It's usually the shell, what's called the building envelope for the building enclosure. That's your walls, your roof, and your foundation. And the biggest culprit is air leakage. So if you're asking me what three things to fix on an existing house that was built pre that first NA code 2004, I would say air seal. Then the second thing you do is air seal. And then the third thing you do is air seal. And then you add insulation. And in that order. So that has been the primarily energy loss in most existing homes is air leakage. And you cannot seal it tight enough. Again, we had a building assumption or mantra that buildings need to breathe. You still hear some residential builders say that it's false. We had data since the 1980s showing that that's false. You want that house as tight as you can possibly make it, and then you need to add mechanical ventilation for people in combustion appliances if you have any. So that is the biggest fix is the shell, making it airtight and then adding appropriate levels of insulation. Then it's going through your appliances and your, your hot water heater, your furnace and or heat pump, whatever you have then your refrigerator, you're kind of going down from largest appliances, working on down to your small appliances. In there, pretty up toward it, like a lighting. Your lighting is actually more energy consumption than your refrigerator. So making sure you have all LEDs, you'd be surprised how many homes I walk in still with incandescent light bulbs. So there's more of that out there than people appreciate. So if you have an incandescent light bulb in your microwave, in your oven, on your front porch, get rid of it yesterday. LEDs are very cost-effective, cost-neutral, and you'd be surprised how many of poor lighting we still find today. Hey everyone, I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, Having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the members tab at the top. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the show. 
Got it. So that is for existing homes and just, it sounds like, seal that puppy up as much as you can. Good for summer, good for winter. Good for indoor air quality, good for comfort, good for environmental perspective, less allergens, less pollution coming in, less humidity, less mold, less hot and cold spots throughout the building where the upstairs is 15 degrees warmer or hotter than downstairs. So yeah, you can't go wrong with air chilling. The other benefits of working on a shell is that for every dollar you spend on a shell, air sealing and insulating, you save about 25 cents in new mechanical equipment. So what happens is if you have to get a new furnace or hopefully a heat pump, instead of getting what's in your house now, it's probably a five ton furnace. You air seal that envelope and you add more insulation. Now you're putting in a three ton furnace or a three ton, hopefully a heat pump. So that just saved you about four to six grand. But every dollar you spend on a shell saves you about 25 cents on your mechanical replacement. So if you're looking at doing both, furnaces last about 20 years, heat pumps last 15 to 20 years, air conditioners last 12 to 15 years, again, depending on where you're at in the country and your climate zone. So before you replace mechanical equipment, think about upgrading your shell and you're getting better indoor air quality, better comforts, and your mechanical equipment is cheaper because it's smaller and it runs less. Yep. So seal up that house, make sure you have LED lighting, and then focus on appliances in that order. Yes, correct. And the four new bills, going back to the point that you brought up about people wanting to come to you for design help, like what type of work do you, let's say someone wants to build a new house and they said, I want someone like Transduction to come in and help me design, quote unquote, all the systems. Take us through the step of what a typical process would be like. And how do you work with the HVAC folks, the plumbing folks, the carpentry folks and whomever else? Sure. So, you know, we have a kind of a questionnaire where we sit down and walk through the clients. A lot of it is, where do you want to live? How do you live? How many people are in the house? How many pets? Do you like to entertain? How many people come visit you, grandkids, whatever the case may be? What kind of clothing do you wear during the day? Do you sleep butt naked or are you in sweatpants and sweatshirts? All that's helping us design where we want to get the comfort point, what's called a thermal comfort. And there's actually a design process, the ASHRAE 55 a thermal comfort process to making sure the building, the interior of the building is thermally comfortable as well. And, and you do the same thing with lighting. Do you like a lot of natural lighting? Do you want to be able to see neighbors? How do you want the house to be oriented? Everybody has plans of solar and batteries. They don't know it, but everybody has plans for solar and batteries. So you're designing a house to be solar ready and battery ready when they want to pull that trigger. But if you look at the cost curves and the reality within 20 years, almost every new construction house is going to have at least solar and probably some type of storage, whether it's water or batteries. So you're making buildings pre-designed where that can be added in a plug and play type manner. So if they walk barefooted, well, then you're looking at like kind of a radiant heating system right, or cooling system so they can feel it. They still wear shoes inside the house, then that radiant benefit may not be as beneficial to you. So maybe that's the savings there. Do they like the air being blown or do they want surface heating and cooling? Budget is always part of that conversation. Timeline is part of that conversation. So you you take that information, you come up with some schematic designs, estimate budgets. Do they have a builder already in mind? 
do they have an architect already in mind, whatever? What's their goal? Do they want to be off-grid? They want to get some type of lead certification or passive house certification or do they, whatever their wants are. And so we'll come back to them of this is your wants, these are your costs, here's are your trade-offs. There are certain trade-offs we don't allow them to make, like we will ventilate, even though locally mechanical ventilation is not code, it's in the code books. It's been in code books since 2012. What happens a lot of jurisdictions remove it. That's dumb. That's unhealthy. If we're going to do it, we're going to have mechanical ventilation. And can you just double tap into what is mechanical ventilation? So that's bringing in that outside air. So if you have like a really well-sealed house, you have to have some mechanism to so that bring it outside you don't air. suffocate so inside. The house doesn't need to breathe. The people inside the house need to breathe. <laughs> so you want to make sure you have enough what we call fresh air, which is really outside air. It may or may not be fresh on your location and time of day. We want to make sure that that's coming in. It's coming in at a controlled amount, at a controlled location, ducted and spread throughout the house to certain values and certain flow rates in certain rooms, well-controlled, filtered, heat recovery, all those good things to where the running it is very energy efficient and almost adds nothing to your utility bill. So things like that, we don't allow them to pick. The fact that they're solar ready, we don't allow them to pick because they don't realize it, but that's kind of where the future is going. The service panel is another issue. Like people don't know it, but they're going to have an EV in their driveway in 20 years. So you want to make sure that service panel has at least one or two open 40 to 60 amp circuit breakers for a future EV charger that they swear they hate and they're never going to buy. but 20 years from now, that house, which will be there 80 years from now, is going to have an EV in the driveway. So things like that, you add and you kind of just throw it in without telling them. Other things, orientation, they can pick. Well, and again, that kind of depends on lots and subdivision and things like that. So you try to make them happy and give them what they want under the best budgets possible. And those first costs recently with construction costs really escalating. Lately, that's been a challenge, but you just work through the process. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're building these designs that will involve the builders, the architects, and all the trades that are necessary to ensure that there is right electrical and right plumbing for the home. And so you come in at the beginning part. I'm curious, are there success stories that you can point to on, you know, clients saying like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know I needed this. And thank goodness I had the service. And also on the converse side, what are some points of rub as you are putting together these plans and really bringing people together? Sure. So it's vital for us to get in early. So we need to be in with the architect and the builder or the designer. Here in Nebraska, we don't require architect to stamp residential buildings, R1 and R2, it could just be a, pretty much anybody. And that those laws vary from state to state. So it's very important that you get in early, that you emphasize the importance of a tight shell, of a well-insulated cell, and how that makes the rest of the work so much easier and so much more comfortable for life. So an example is triple pane windows. So we had a client, well-to-do clients, had a nice lot, lot of acreage, with this wonderful vista off the back end of the house where he could see it kind of went down into a valley and with the sun setting. So there's just this gorgeous view. So basically the backside of his house is going to be all glass, first and second levels. So you can, you know, take advantage of this wonderful vista. 
And we did a lot of computer modeling. We did a lot of comfort modeling, what's called the therm modeling. And we came back and said, do you really want to buy triple pane windows? And we explained to them why that is important. And you know, we were adding probably 100K to the project, about 130K to the project. And this was about a seven-figure, both seven-figure, one-point-something million-dollar house. So there was a lot of pushback from everybody for it. But we showed them that when you do this, since you have a wall of windows and not broken up with a window, a cheap window is like an R3, whereas the wall, the oblique wall next to it is going to be an R20. That's a big difference that if you're standing in front of that wall within five feet of that wall, you're going to feel it. You're going to feel the draft of that window. It's not going to be comfortable. So you have this gorgeous view that you're going to enjoy for about three seconds before you have to move away from the wall, from the window, because of downdrafts too much light coming in, too hot in the summer, too cold in the winter. You get these high-end windows that are mostly triple-pane, kind of European-style windows. You can sit in front of that window all day, and you're not feeling those downdrafts. You're not getting too much solar light in because you have a better what's called solar heat gain coefficient, so not enough solar heat radiating is, is coming through the window. It's bouncing back and going outside. And after it was built, the guy was like, these windows are all like we did like a tour of the house, an AIA tour of the house. And all they talked about was the damn windows, right? On a seven figure house, because you could stand there all day and drink a cup of coffee or whatever and watch it. So that was a success story, but we had to fight like hell to get them to add the additional money. So that's success. Other problems we've had is a thought we've had is that our state offers energy efficient loans. So they will give you a low loan rate if you build an energy efficient house to their standards. And they don't follow ResNet, they don't follow, they require Energy Star and some of these other things, but they also have some of their own standards, which I don't agree with everything they're doing. And so we had a client that built with that and their requirement would be to have a heat pump with electric resistance backup. This was a few years ago, back before the low temperature heat pumps were really on the market very much. But enough of them were on the market where I propose using one of these and get rid of electric resistance. Because what happens in winter, and we have cold winters here in Nebraska, that winter utility bill skyrockets because electric resistance heating is the most inefficient way of heating. It's also extremely uncomfortable. So I told the homeowner, I said, if you go this lane and you go this way, you take this loan and you build electric resistance, it's going to suck. You're going to have your high utility bills and you're going to be extremely uncomfortable. Well. He wanted the loan, the right loan, so he took it. And sure enough, that's what happened. And he wasn't very happy with me. And I had like all these emails I sent him where I told you this. I actually had him sign a disclaimer for it. And he ended up switching out a two-year heat pump with one of these low temperature heat pumps that can produce heat at minus 20. But that was a significant cost to him. And it's unfortunately a lot of our state-run programs don't have we have state employees that aren't familiar with the construction business or don't have engineering degrees and don't really understand these things and you're getting a lot of people that take advantage of these programs that walk away with bad experiences and one of my fears is with the inflation reduction act we're going to see a lot more of that in the future how do we rectify that or how can we proactively start preventing more people from going down the path. That's going to be tough. So 
there's a lot of money for heat pumps and there's gonna be a lot of people installing heat pumps. It takes a lot of effort to design a heat pump. First of all, you have to design a heat pump. Most contractors are gonna look the size of your air conditioner and gonna put the same size heat pump right in. Guaranteed to be a disaster. Secondly, is that again, for our neck of the woods where we have what's called cold climates, climate zone, so basically anywhere north of like Kansas City and north, you need heat pumps that can hand that can produce heats at low temperatures. Those heat pumps cost more. And if you have like a cheap two-stage heat pump that costs $4,000 and you're getting $2,000 IRA tax credits, you're going to take that and that's being pushed by the HVAC contractor versus the variable speed inverted heat pump that costs $8,000. And people are going to grab those $4,000 heat pumps and they're also going to have R410 refrigerants, which you can't get serviced past January 1st, 2025 because of all the refrigerant phases out that's going to happen over the next three years. So I think there's going to be a lot of those issues. A lot of these heat pumps also do a very poor job of managing moisture. It's particularly true for California and for places that have moderate temperature climates where your air conditioner might not be running, but you have high latent loads, which is all high humidity in the house. You have to design heat pump very carefully and select heat pump very carefully take advantage to manage those situations. And unfortunately, a lot of those heat pumps do not qualify for IRA tax credits. So, and it gets complicated in the design and it gets really geeky. And you're talking about SHR, sensible heat recovery ratio, things like that, that average people aren't going to understand. Contractors often don't understand it. People who are running these rebate programs don't understand it. And so that's going to be a problem. And contract contractors are going to push the simplest, cheapest unit that they can get their hands on with the best supply chain that they can install quickly and move on to the next project. So that's a hard problem. I don't have a good answer for you. It's going to get ugly. You're going to need programs with a lot of quality insurance. And so I think places like NYSERA in New York, which has weatherization programs, been running those weather appraisation programs for 20, 30 years. They're going to be and have staffed up to handle these situations and have already dealt with these situations and have policies and procedures to handle it. You're going to have more success at those locations, New York, Massachusetts with the UMass Save programs, parts of California, depending on your city. Certain states are good at that. I'm not sure about Washington. I'm not sure about Oregon. Minneapolis, Minnesota has a good program. So I think those, it will be very successful, but a lot of these other states, it's going to be a disaster. The states that you just mentioned that you think are going to be more successful, they have programs which they focus more on weatherization and it sounds like maybe education as well. Yeah. So they have more education and they have weatherization. So most states just take federal money from the Department of Energy and that's all the money that they put into their weatherization programs. Those states I mentioned actually have state dollars that they put into the weatherization programs, both for education, as well as providing more services to a broader population. While that weatherization money is just meant for low-income housing, the state may supplement that to increase the what's called the AMI, the affordable mean income. So instead of just being below 80%, they can go up to like, you know, 100% of the poverty line, things like that. So certain states have supplemented that. They have staff, they have offices, to run those programs, they do education. So they're going to be able to hit 
the IRA, get those funds and hit the ground running. Whereas places like Nebraska, we have a state and energy office, but we have like one person doing the weatherization, right? If they take the IRA money, they're going to need 12, right? So first of all, they got to hire 12 people. They got to find 12 people. And the money for that 12 people needs to be approved by the state legislature, which doesn't meet again until January. So you're not hiring those people till July 2024. They have to figure out, you know, how to do their program. And so it's going to be January 2025, really, before those programs are up and running. Whereas UMass, New York, Minnesota, that already have programs in place, a lot of those programs have already hired people. In January, the state of Ohio was advertising six positions where they were looking. January 2023, they were trying to hire people for the IRA, which wasn't coming out to the summer. So again, they were proactive. They were thinking ahead. They were moving forward, whereas some states have been all reactive. So IRA will be greatly beneficial, but I think it's going to be a lot of has and has nots. Some, some states will greatly benefit from it. Some states won't. And some consumers and homeowners will see great benefits. Some will have disasters. And so now we're in a phase of how do we minimize the disasters? What role does politics play into the shaping of funding at the state level for energy offices to be able to make sure that we have the right types of people and the volumes of people to welcome this new chapter of IRA funding? It does play a role. It can be a significant role. Typically in conservative states, they typically have smaller state governments because that's kind of the way the politicians like smaller state governments, less regulation, fewer employees. I think there's five states that don't even have a state energy office. Those are all GOP-dominated states, mostly here in the upper Midwest. Those states have small energy offices, small weatherization programs. They don't have state funds supporting those weatherization and energy offices. Those are almost always federal funds. And because of that, there's smaller staff, fewer dollars, less equipment, less ability to ramp up to handle things like the IRA where you could have a huge influx of state dollars to come in. It may take you know a year or two to add enough staff to handle the money coming in. So if you look at the IRA Homes Program, which is the energy efficient retrofits in existing homes, and the HEERA program, which is set aside for low-income to moderate-income households to also do electrification, most of those states are getting somewhere between 50 and 150 million dollars. So the state of Nebraska, we only have about 2 million people. We're still getting 91 million dollars over 10 years from the IRA post two programs. It takes a dozen people to manage a 91 million dollar program, if not more, right? Our state energy office has one person doing the weatherization. The total office on the energy side is probably about six people. So they're looking at tripling their staff if they take this money. Well, to hire a new staff person for a state office, that has to be approved by the legislature, which only meets January through March, I'm sorry, January through May of each year. So if a state director says, whoa, I just got 60 million or $91 million from the federal government, it may take them nine months to advertise the job to advertise the job, not to hire someone, but just to advertise the job. So, so those are type of the hurdles that 
some of the more conservative states because they have a philosophy of small governments, small regulation, fewer state employees. Those are the challenges that they have over other states that may have large weatherization programs that have been up and running for decades that are more nimble and can respond more quickly and can shift staff around as needed more easily. Are there states that are red that have done a good job of ensuring that? So it's not strictly red and blue states. There are some mixes. So if you look at the state of Iowa has primarily been a Republican state as all their federal representatives are Republican, but they have a decent weatherization program and they had offered a lot of rebates historically. And the reason why that continues is because the citizens are happy with the program. They're very pleased. And when one of the Republican governors tried to cut it a few years ago, there was a lot of outcry from the citizens. And so that idea got nixed. Kentucky is another state that has ramped up their weatherization services, emphasized energy efficiency, provided more funding and incentives for this, and has also seen a similar response, both from the population as well as more and more programs and more energy-efficient buildings being built, particularly with their schools. Kentucky set aside quite a bit of money to make their schools more energy-efficient. A lot of those schools have been built, and they're way more energy-efficient. They're using you know, ground-source heat pumps. They have ICF buildings, which is the insulated concrete forms. So they have very energy-efficient shells, very, very energy-efficient mechanical systems, and everybody's been happy with that. So it varies a lot from state to state, but it's not strictly a red versus blue state. There are some states that have been just more more engaged than others. Thanks for that really interesting perspective. And I know we have limited time left. David, do you have any parting advice for any listeners who are thinking about weatherization and home electrification for their own homes? So in terms of for the audience that's listening to this, that's thinking about electrification. So you need a plan and you need a timeline and it needs to be a realistic timeline. And that timeline depends on your cash flow, right? And it's also going to depend on supply change. So I think this fall and for the next 10 years, there's going to be a huge demand for heat pumps. So being able to get the heat pump installed, I wouldn't be surprised if we're looking at six to 12 month backlogs. Not in terms of finding a contractor to do it, that's a factor too, but in terms of having one, having these manufacturers keep up. Because you also have to consideration from 2023 to 2025, all the refrigerants and all the US made units are being switched out. So we're, we're getting rid of the hydrofluorocarbons, which is the R410A, which is the most dominant refrigerants in residential heating and cooling system. That's already started being phased out, and that cannot be used in any new equipment after January 1st, 2025. So these manufacturers are already having to change how they, and you can't just switch out one refrigerant for the other because they operate at different pressures, right? So the whole design changes. Some refrigerants you can use replacements, but many others you can't. And a lot of these newer refrigerants with lower GWP, global warming potential, they operate at higher pressures. They also are tend to be more flammable. So there's more safety valves and things like that integrated into the equipment. So it's a whole new piece of equipment. So 
I think people need to be very cautious when they start after you fix the shell, after you upgrade your electrical panel, because now you're going to have probably need for four or five 40 to 60 amp breakers, one for induction stove, one for a heat pump, hot water heater, one for electric EV, and another one for your heat pump, right? After you upgrade your panel, which is going to cost you three to five grand. And once you start buying this equipment, you have to add a lot of questions. You're going to have to be willing to wait six months or more before a piece of equipment is going to become available and then a contractor is going to be available to install it. But again, which is why start now with the easy things. Your lighting, you can fix today. As soon as you hear this podcast, you can fix that now. You can start worrying on your building shell now. You can do that now. You can get contractors to install installation whenever you want. You can get contractors air seal whenever you want. And then you can start planning about, okay, now I need somebody to properly size my system, properly design my system, properly install the rest of my mechanical and plumbing systems, and somebody to come through and commission it. And there's standards available out there that nobody follows, but exists. So the listener needs to become familiar with like ACA standard four, which is how to properly maintain an HVAC system. ACA standard five, which is a quality insulation of a new heating or cooling system. And ACA standard nine says is quality insulation verification. So what you want to do, you want to hire one HVAC contractor to install your new heat pump. And you want to hire a second HVAC contractor to verify the first contractor did it correct. And you say, won't that cost more? Yeah, it will cost more, but it will work. And you'll be more comfortable and it will last longer. It won't crap out in 10 years. It's going to crap out in 12 years. And that third person is going to tell you that that heat pump that just got put in is actually a 410A, which you can't replace in two years. So if you get a leak and your refrigerant leaks, guess what? You're buying a new heat pump. So it's going to get complicated. Do your due diligence. There are many things you can do now. You can buy an EV now. You can switch out a new panel now. You can air seal now. You can do your lighting now. You can buy an energy star refrigerator now. All that stuff matters and adds up. But your heating and cooling equipment, that's going to take some forethought. Think ahead. Get a plan. Realize this is going to take one to five years for all this to get done. Sage advice, David. Thank you for letting me pepper you with so many questions about weatherization and home energy space. For anyone who is interested, I found your website to be quite educational to get a 101 on the space, transductiontechnologies.com. If you wanted to, like David has listed a bunch of articles there. So definitely, if you're looking for some resources, that's a really great one. And thanks again, David, for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode.